you have to plan your bootstrap, right? You just can't just start bootstrapping. You got to think about this. You got to look at your own personal savings. You're like, what's your strategy? Are you going to maintain a second job? Or are you going to tap into your savings? Whatever the strategy is, plan it out. How much runway do you really have with that type of a strategy, right? How far can you go? Do you need um, to hire people? Can you do a lot of the work yourself from the beginning, right? How do you maximize your credit in those early days to leverage as much from your credit to help you offset expenses or pay for expenses and so on. So really plan out your bootstrap, not just, you know, just jump yourself, you know, jump in the water and start trying to swim, really plan it out and then, uh, and then move forward. Is what I- Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I am your host, Devin Miller, the uh, serial entrepreneur that's also the founder of um, Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. And today on The Inventive Journey, we'll go through another great journey of uh, Farouk. He has been in the kind of the financial services for a while. He was in the uh, mortgage industry for a bit of time. And then when you had uh, the housing crisis hit and all of that go, started over, figured out some things, and uh, now he's uh, moved on to another industry, which is kind of adjacent to that, trying to solve the $1.6 trillion student loan crisis and uh, looking for different ways to to help uh, students and those coming out of school or those who are out of school to tackle their student loans. And so he'll give a much better intro than I ever could. So welcome on to the podcast. Hi, Devin. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm doing great and great to have you on the podcast. So I gave a short intro, but maybe, you, you know, maybe we can uh, start. You have a uh, defiance uh, that you are doing now, but uh, maybe if we take a step or two back, kind of tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing in the financial services and the mortgage industry that led you, uh, led up to where you are today. Absolutely. Um, so you got my name right, but the company is Definance. So let's, oh, let's sorry. I didn't say Defiance. <laughs> Defiance. Sorry. Finance. Yes. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've been in the financial services industry for, I don't know, 25 to 30 years now. Uh, started off with insurance, actually, with Aon Corporation for a few years, uh, primarily as an underwriter. Later on, I became an account, account executive with them. And then I jumped into the, the tech development or, or web application development area for a few years in the dot-com days. Uh, those were the great days where you could basically say whatever you wanted uh, in terms of a, a contract and you, you basically get it. So uh, before I knew it, about five, six years, I went by from one project to another. Um, but then after the dot-com crash in, in, in the early part of this century, uh, that's when my mortgage experience started. I worked for a company that was doing alternative mortgages, kind of uh, more based on like a co-ownership model versus a lending model, uh, which sort of introduced me to some alternative ways of doing finance. I uh, worked with them for a few years, and uh, then I started my own uh, company with a couple of other executives who were uh, with the mortgage company that I was with initially. And uh, our company, we wanted to focus on commercial real estate mortgages. Uh, the previous company was residential mortgages. This was commercial. Uh, we wanted to focus on small balance mortgages. Uh, we felt there was a need in the market uh, because a lot of the bigger banks were focused on, you know, the big properties, the high rises and all kinds of fancy stuff. But what about the strip malls and, and the doctor's offices and the warehouses, the smaller stuff that a lot of people were interested uh, in acquiring uh, business mm-hmm. owners and et cetera. 
So that's what we want to focus on. But, but again, to test out more alternative structures, we, we decided to build a lease-to-own mortgage contract. Uh, it took us two years from 2005 to 2007. Uh, we built that out, uh, working with various law firms, accountants, eventually even rating agencies to make sure that these contracts would be uh, securitizable. Mm. Uh, we, we talked to a bunch of Wall Street companies from UBS to uh, to City to all kinds of folks, but eventually ended up with uh, Deutsche Bank, who agreed to structure these deals the way we wanted to structure them, and also then to to uh, aggregate them in a separate portfolio on their balance sheet, so we can securitize them mm. uh, down the road as you know as we built it up in a, in a volume. And then it was all also about figuring out how do we provide the best customer service. So we uh, partnered up with Pacific Life Insurance Company, one of the leading commercial mortgage servicing. Um, platforms uh, they, they have out there. So Pacific Life came on board as well. And then we had about, I was the chief operating officer. So we built about five or I think six offices throughout the country, California, uh, Texas, um, Chicago, New York, uh, Florida. And um, by the time we were, we launched in the market in spring of 2007, we had about, I think 20 plus employees and raring to go. And uh, you know, our strategy produced about a half a billion dollars of deals in our pipeline within a matter of a few months. Uh, but then the rug was pulled out from under our feet because the financial <laughs> You along with a whole lot of other people, if I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, thinking back on it, right, you can't, you can't always control your timing, right? Obviously, if we had known that was going to happen, it would have been a different strategy. But mm. um but you know, it's now look. Now I look back at it, and I'm like, wow, what a great learning experience! Because managing customers with all this uncertainty, and literally, if you imagine, we started in like spring of 2007. So we had a few deals that were in the pipeline. Commercial mortgage deals take longer than residential mortgage deals. There's a more, you know, more involved. Um, but by the time the crisis hit, we had people that were. You know, ready to schedule their closing, right? They've already been approved. We've issued approval letters. And now all of a sudden, Deutsche Bank is like raising their spreads and now they're not qualifying because, you know, pricing is going up. So all kinds of craziness how this to happen. Uh, but uh, we figured out how to do a few deals working with some community banks. But ultimately, the business model was based on CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed securities. And that part of the business uh, for Wall Street even shut down for a while. So maybe so, jump, just jumping in just a little bit, because I think there's at least, there's some to unpack there, right? So, I mean, 2005 to 2007, you worked almost, you know, two, almost two years or around two years, getting this all set up, getting it going, starting to feed the pipeline. And I think if I remember right, and you'd know much better, I, I mean, about 2008 was the time really the housing market started crashing down around you, maybe the end of 2007, early. Yeah, end of 2007 is when it all started. And so then you're saying, and when you see all of that, because I mean, you have at least some overtones and different things, different causes, different experience, even what, you know, small businesses are seeing today, right? With rugs, rugs pull out with people that you have locked down, you have or whole industries that have been shut down, you have to figure out a completely new way of doing it. And while get you know, the financial industry, that was more specific to real estate and mortgage and that it had a big overtones. But how did you you know, when that started to you started to see the rug was getting pulled out from under you things were crashing, having to pivot and all that? How did you deal with that? Or what did you do in order to deal with that or to try and navigate through that the best you could in a very uncertain time? Yeah, the, the number one thing was trying to take care of the customers that were furthest along in the process. 
mm. right? To to figure out how do we deal with them. So so then we scrambled around, found a couple of small com- community banks that were able to look at our deals. So we were able to execute a few deals because the, those customers were way in the process, meaning they had sales contracts on properties, right? They put down deposits. So just to say, hey, we can't fund you anymore. That's a major major problem for those types of folks, right? So the people that were kind of way further in the process, uh, we scrambled and we were able to execute a few deals. So that was number one. Then number two, you have to figure out as a business owner, how do you extend your runway, right? Because your business model is basically collapsing around you, but how do you buy yourself more time to strategize, like you mentioned, to pivot and, and look at what's what's next, right? And to really analyze what's going on, you know, can we even save this business? Or does this have to be a complete pivot into something something else altogether? So that was the next thing. As a chief operating officer, my job was to is to look at that issue. So um, so we had to lay people off. You know, we had to cut down our operations, right? Streamline things, and I was able to extend our runway, our capital runway, by another year. Um, and then during that time, we investigated two other opportunities that were coming our way. One was an international opportunity to set up some mortgage operations in another part of the world, and then the other was to actually starting an insurance uh, brokerage, working with a leading insurance company uh, who was also having a lot of problems, at least their parent company was. That mm. We were working with Lexington Insurance Company and their parent was AIG. And if you remember from those days, AIG uh, got a huge bailout from the government because uh, they were also on the verge of collapsing because they were so, so heavily involved in the whole um, credit default swaps and you know the mortgage stuff that was going on. But anyway, so we, we actually ended up breaking our partnership. Three of my partners went overseas to pursue that line of business. Uh, and then I stayed behind because I had an insurance background. And um, so I stayed behind to focus on building the insurance brokerage. Mm. And uh, that's, what I, that's, that's how things uh, evolved from 2000, uh, starting in 2008 until about 2009, about two year period when all this, you know, all this transition happened uh, for us. So if I were to take that and, and maybe break it down just a little bit. So you have 2005, 2007, you built it up, built the pipelines, had about a half a million dollars in, in uh, deals or in half the Half a billion. So it was a pretty big pipeline. Oh, half a billion. Okay. Yeah. That's, a, that's a lot more money than a half a million. So half a billion dollars in the pipeline. We're working through that. And then you're saying, okay, as with most other people, you have the carpet that's pulled out from money. And you said, okay, we've got kind of a two-pronged strategy. One is that we're going to the deals that are farthest along that have the most likelihood of closing and moving forward and everything else, we're going to continue or focus on those. Right. And then the second thing was, is, Hey, now let's get conservative or make sure that we can, uh, or how far we can extend our runway with our current cash. So anything that may have been in the pipeline or, you know, things that you're going to do that you could pull back on or otherwise not expend capital, you were able to do that with those kind of two things. So you, you said that you guys kind of went all the way to 2017 and then wound down the company. Is that right? No, no. By 2009, we were able to get the insurance brokerage going. Okay. So it took about a year and a half or so to get that all set up uh, and get that going. So then that became my focus for the next few years until 2017. Okay. So it's kind of uh, working on the... Went to 2009 with the current model as you were doing that, pivoted over to the insurance brokerage, then in 2017, that's where you're saying you wound down. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then by 2017, um, the climate was very difficult for those first few years, right? Because the financial crisis was still going on for a few years there. So then as um, you know, I decided to move down to Florida because I was in the New Jersey, New York area. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I had grown up, spent about 30 plus years. Uh, but wanted to kind of cut down lifestyle a little bit, uh, 
Uh, also realized on a personal level, right, that, you know, I was just spending too much time working, not giving enough time to my family. Uh, so all this stuff goes on around you. You sometimes lose track of some of the personal things that are important. So mm -hmm. part of the reason for coming to Florida was to also, you know, slow down lifestyle to some degree, uh, lower our expenses so that we could, um, you know, further extend the runway and, and, and kind of have more time to really think things through and see what the future holds. Um, so anyway, that happened, came down here, kept working on the insurance stuff for a while, but thinking about how, why, you know, why did this financial crisis happen? What can we do to improve things? Uh, and really my conclusion uh, ultimately was that, you know, our, our, the way we do finance is, is really prone to all these recessions and peaks and valleys. Um, and I wanted to work on more socially responsible financial structures that balance, that create more balance and level the playing field for customers as well. So that's what I really started thinking about um, and contemplating. And then as 2017 rolled around, really started to focus on, you know, how do we start executing on some of these ideas? And then by 2018, really launched this current company to uh, focus on the student debt crisis because that was the one area that really stood out as a major pain point uh, that had developed over the past 15 years or so. I mean, I grew up you know, in America, student debt was always around, but never, never to the extent it is now or to the level of a crisis that it is now, right? The $1.6 trillion you mentioned. So sure. we wanted to tackle that problem. And then we, did, uh, did, we discovered a very interesting approach of using an income sharing agreement. Instead of lending money, uh, why can't we use, have people refinance their student loans using income sharing agreements, which are more balanced for the consumer, provide lots of protections, especially on the downside, right? Because if your income drops or you lose your job, with an income sharing agreement, you don't have to make a payment. And that's not like a negative thing. It's not like we're reporting them to credit or you know, mm. chasing after them. It's actually part of the structure of the, of the income sharing agreement contract. Um, so before so I jump into and because I think we'll jump into that in just a minute, going back, so you talked about, okay, 2007, things are winding down with that company. You're saying, okay, I want to have a bit more of a social impact, so to speak, or I want to make more of a difference and hit an industry that I think I can do some good in. So what were some, and you ended up landing on student loans, right? Or student debt type or student loan debt. What were some of the other ideas that you'd had that you'd, you bounced around or, or kind of on the whiteboard or the, or at least the theoretical whiteboard that you were thinking about at that time? And how did you, how did you land on student loans as opposed to some of the other ones you're thinking of? Yeah. So, you know, as an entrepreneur, you have to, um, you have to think of ideas, but, but I think they need to be rooted in your experience. Right, because ultimately, if you're not experienced in certain things, if you're tackling a whole new industry, a whole new business model, you know, you, you just raise raise the level of complexity and challenge for yourself, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so my my initial idea was to focus on more of a uh, different insurance policy, like a mutual insurance policy that's more socially responsible, from from at least from the perspective that I have. And we looked at different areas where there may be some gaps in the insurance industry that we could tackle. We looked at like nonprofit insurance and a few other things. Mm. Um, but the more we looked at kind of surveyed, but, but part of what I wanted to do also was to kind of survey the financial landscape and see, you know, let's not get zoned into one area. Let's really see where the problems really are, right? And let, let the problem lead us to a solution versus just, you know, sometimes entrepreneurs just kind of uh, almost like, um, try to create problems with but problems don't exist so uh, those are always the worst problems that almost always <laughs> fail because you what and I completely agree what tends to happen or what can happen is 
you think of a really cool idea, or, you know, and I work with a lot of tech companies too, a really cool technology, and you focus on this technology is awesome, and then you think, but does anybody want it, or does it actually have a place in the marketplace? Because you can make really cool technology that doesn't solve any problem, but that nobody wants, but it's really cool. And that's, you know, and I think that translates over into a lot of things where this is a really fun idea, and I think we can do it. And then nobody wants it. So, yeah, no, I think that's always something that you have to be careful or to safeguard against so you don't kind of almost start to, as you pointed out, drink your own Kool-Aid or think, hey, these are fun ideas or I could, we'd love to chase after this, but root it one in the where your experience is at and then two in actually solving a problem, which student loan or student loans is certainly a, a big, uh, big problem and something to tackle. So you didn't choose a small problem to start out with. No, and I think that's important too, right? Because, you know, investors and, um, especially when you look to raise capital, people want to see big problems. People want to see that you're tackling big problems. There's a real potential to make money, you know, in this in the space you're in or the or the market size that you're dealing with. So I think that certainly helps. Um, so and you know personally, like I didn't have direct experience in student loans, but I had enough ancillary experience in you know credit underwriting and risk mitigation with insurance and overall in the financial services industry that I, I felt comfortable that this is an area that I, that I could bring a lot of what I have learned for, you know, from my past, including technology, you know, cause I have been a coder and developer also for a little mm-hmm. bit of my time. So, um, so, so now let's, I think having jumped in enough, let's jump in and I'll give the quick intro and then I'll let you talk a whole lot more just so sure. I'm going to bring it down to my level of understanding, which is probably the simpler level. Um, so if I were to take it, so you have student loans, $1.6 trillion. It's a big, you know, a lot of money, a lot of people come out of school and, you know, I went through and I got way too many degrees. Although I was, I was pretty conservative. I came out of undergraduate without any student loans, which was great. Oh, also awesome. went to a cheaper school. It was uh, Brigham Young University or BYU out here in Utah. I worked my tail off and we, anyway, we came out without student loans. Can't say the same thing when I went to graduate school. I went and did, you know, both a law degree and an MBA and we came out with a decent amount of student loans. And I worked really hard. We pinched pennies. We were, we lived as cheap a lifestyle as anybody and we were able to pay it off. So I, you know, I get having to go through that, but you know, for a lot of people, it can be a difficult thing. And it, it asks, you know, you come out of student loans and I look at even a lot of undergraduates, you'll come out of undergraduate with hundred thousand plus student loans, just an undergraduate. And you're looking saying, I make a job or I have a job that I make 50 or 60,000. This is going to take forever to ever pay it off. So I think your approach, if I understand it right, is we kind of say, let's come in and do almost an income sharing agreement where we'll look at what your income is coming out of school or what your income possibilities are. We'll determine what that, what, what that likelihood is. And then based on that, we'll craft agreement in order to help pay off your student loans based on your income. So we'll share a portion of your income over a period of time. And if you, as long as you share that income over that period of time, we'll pay off for student loans. Is that kind of the model that was setting up or did I completely slaughter that? No, no, no. You, you did a good job. I mean, it is exactly that. Uh, in fact, you know, in a, in a lending borrowing relationship, right, the risk is primarily with the borrower. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here in the income share agreement relationship, the risk is shared by both sides, right? Because on the downside, if someone loses their job, uh, income drops, right? Then even the investor, or in this case, let's say, were the company were investing in you, the uh, and in your income potential, then we share that risk because we're not making money while you're not working, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, we've also gone, the next logical step is to say, well, we're actually going to help you because you know, our goals are the same. If you're not working money, making money, we're not making money. So we've actually uh, built an ecosystem to help people, uh, whether in their downside, to help them find a job, uh, switch careers, upskill, 
connect them with recruiters, job boards, provide career counseling. But even as they're navigating their careers, even if things are going okay, making sure that, hey, are you maximizing your raises? Hey, we have some salary negotiators in our, uh, in our uh, ecosystem that can assist you about how to negotiate your salary, make sure you're maximizing, you're not leaving any money on the table or figuring out is it a good time to switch jobs? Is it a good time to go back and get a degree or some certification or something else that may help you in your career? So kind of working on both sides, not just the downside, but also the upside. So um, yeah, and I think that's interesting because what you've really, and again, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but you've almost flipped it. So whether Typically, the lender, lendee, you know, or loaded a person taking the loan have an almost an adversarial can be adversarial in the right. sense that I don't care what you do, get me my money type of a thing because I need to get paid and I want to get paid. And you're saying no, let's make this a collaborative kind of relationship to where we win if you have a better income, we win if you have a better job, we win if you know things are going well for you. So if you can't find a job or jobs going down or you lose your job or you're in a job where you could make more or you need to do that. All of those things you're saying, the, the more we do to help you have a better income, the more we get paid and the more the loan gets paid off. And so let's, let's align the same interests as opposed to making it adversarial, which I think is a cool and unique approach in the sense that most of the time it doesn't, you don't, you know, you don't have that type of relationship with a lender. And I think that's one where it will help to align interests and also get a better outcome. Better outcome. And ultimately you, you run into this moral hazard with lenders, right? Where because your, your interests are not aligned, then both sides are trying to cut corners to win at the expense of the others losing, right? So like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident saying I'm probably a little older than you. Um, so I grew up in the, the greed is good 80s uh, culture, right? Uh, where competition. I was born in '84, so I'll let you figure out if you're older than me or not. I'm, 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 yeah, I'm, I mean, I was, I was in, you know, let's say I was in high school and starting college in the '80s, so a little bit older. Right. Uh, but yeah, that's the culture, right? Wall Street, the big famous movie from Mike, from Michael Douglas, right? Greed is good. Yeah. That's the culture we grew up in, right? Hey, we, for me to win, you have to lose, and. And as I grew up and I kind of, you know, got in the business world, I, that never made sense to me. Like, why can't we win together? There's got to be ways of winning together. We, sh we shouldn't have to beat the other person down uh, to win. So I think that's what this, this income share agreement or ISA as it's known, really what's, what I like about it, right? Is that, yeah, it's an opportunity for two sides to work together and to win together. And ultimately, I think that's what I think even other things that, that uh, I kind of envision doing in the future within financial services, those are the kind of cooperative structures that I think we need to work on more. So if I were to do, because, and I think we talked about just a little bit before the podcast, and my, my one question was, is it's, and correct me if again, if I'm wrong, and I always feel like I put words in your mouth, but I, I find it interesting. So, because I mean, if you have an income share agreement, on the one side, you get the upside, right? So if their income comes, so if I understand it right, maybe you can explain it. If my income goes, the period of time that I pay is going to be a set up period of time. So if my income comes up, you, I see you get a higher percentage of that in, or you get more money, you get the same percentage, but you'll make more money if my income comes up. If my income goes down, then you get a, you know, less money, but you get the same percentage. So how does that work? Do you set the terms of the limits so that you're, you know, if, it, if my income goes down, I just simply, you, you don't, I don't have to, you don't make as much. Whereas if my income goes up, you make more and you kind of share the risk or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, the fundamental principle is that if you take risk, you are entitled to reward as mm -hmm. well, right? You take risk because you want to get a reward. That's why an entrepreneur starts a business, right? They take a risk, they start a business, they put some of their capital in, time, et cetera, and they're looking for a reward. 
and no difference in this structure, right? So to your point, um, we do set the term of the contract. The term of the contract is fixed. So if it's five years, 10 years, 15, that's typically our terms, five to 15 years. And the income share percentage is fixed. So we're not gonna be messing around with your income share percentage. Whatever we agree upon at the beginning, that will stay the same. Which then tells you that I know how much income I'm sharing so I can build my life and budget my life accordingly. And it doesn't matter how much income I'm making, whether my income is going down or up, that's the same percentage. So my payment will be going less or more. But mm. because we're sharing risk with you, we're entitled to some of the reward on the upside and we're gonna help you achieve the upside too. And yeah. it's not like we get all the upside, you still get the predominant. Uh, no, if you get an, an income increase, you still get more income. So no, I yeah. agree. So, and, so and, our, and we're going to max out our income share percentage in most cases at about fifteen percent. So we're not going to go more than fifteen percent. It's and even fifteen percent is going to be more people like like you who went to graduate school and have much bigger debt than people yeah. that just um, you know undergraduate studies. Undergraduate. And last question, and then we'll we'll jump. To, I got my two questions. I always ask it in a podcast. So I'm going to throw it a third one just because I think this is an interesting conversation. So one, if I you know if I were to do this system arrangement, if I lose my job, does that put the time period that I pay on hold? Meaning, let's say I signed up for a fifteen term, you know, fifteen year, you know, income sharing agreement or ten year or whatever that is. If I lose my job, is that still accruing? Meaning, I still don't have to. I still only have to do for ten years, or does that extend it out, or how does that work? If let's say I lose my job for six months because of COVID, you know, whatever it is, right. what would how would that impact the income sharing? Yeah, there's uh, there's two concepts. One is the payment term, which is the 15 years, 10 years, whatever it is. But let's mm. simplify it in the, in the, uh, for like months. Let's say 10 years for 120 months. That's what you've agreed to do. Then you lose your job for a year. You still have to make the same payments of 120 months. You're just going to need extra 12 months to do it because uh, you didn't have income. So but there's going to be a cutoff too. So we can't just keep extending it forever. There's going to be a limit to how much we can extend. So if I were to lose my job for six months, I'd just say for that six months, it just basically puts everything on hold. So if I had 12 months left of my debt, then I would just simply, once I get my job, I'd pick back up with that 12 months remaining. Is that right? Yeah, 12 months left on your ISA, then then yeah, you would have to finish those 12 months up. And also don't forget, like the ISA also gives flexibility for like discretionary deferrals. Mm. So if you want to go back to school and you say, look, I'm going to leave my job for six months or a year. I want to go back to graduate school. Can I get a year pause in my payments? Then we would approve something like that. And then you'd be able to do that, right? Where with a loan, you're kind of stuck. You got to keep making those payments. He'll go back to school and all that stuff. But that but almost, you, And that one almost benefits you, right? Because if they go back to school, go to graduate school, they get a likely get a higher income than the income share or sharing when it kicks back in you'll be able to get a, a greater percent so it, again I, I think it's cool because I, I have to give you kudos i think it aligns a lot of the making everything pull in the same direction you get now you're saying we're both wanting to increase your income we're both wanting to make this a beneficial relationship which i give you all the kudos in the world is because i think that it's solving a problem is a great or a great new way to uh, go after a, a problem that uh, generally hasn't been really changed or addressed in a while. Yeah, and before you get to your two questions, if I can flip the tables for a quick sec. If you had an ISA when when you were paying off your loans, would you still have been wanting to just pay it off very fast? Or would you then have been able to do certain things that you weren't able to do because you had loans and you were putting, dedicating so many resources to kind of taking care of your loans? How would your life have been different? Uh, You know, that's, that's a hard, Crystal. I mean... In the one sense, I'm I'm about as big of a and, and everybody in my whole family. I'm about as big of a penny pincher. I 
I absolutely hate debt, right? So I had, I did debt because I had to do it with graduate school and I couldn't figure out a way to not do it with uh, law school and because it was just too expensive. On the other hand, so if, if I could do it, I'd probably, if I could do it like for a five-year term or a, a, a smaller amount of term and say, okay, what I like is let's say I said, hey, I'll do it for a three or five-year term, but I'll, I'll, I'm willing to increase the percentage of my income you know, that you guys, that I'd be sharing for that period right. of time, then it probably would align up well, because then I could say, okay, I just know for over this period of time, I know how much is coming out of my budget. I know how much to plan for. And I know at the end of this period of time, then I could, I could, I would probably do it. I would probably be the one that wants to go for as short of term as possible, just because I hit debt. But I think it's, it, I think I would probably be a customer, unfortunately, or fortunately, hopefully I've already paid it off. So I don't have to worry about that. But I think that that, that would be one that I would, I would strongly want to sign up for. And I think it'd be one to consider. So yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are in your situation, you know, because of this debt issue, they're not saving money or buying a house or doing certain things in life that they normally would do. Yeah. So I hope that by taking an ISA, they'd be able to do some of those normal things oh, I agree. and not worry about, and not, because this is not debt, right? You're not obligated to pay, pay us back. It's possible you may pay us less if you were like unemployed for a long time. Yep. So that's actually possible in our contract. No, I, I think that's cool. So, all right, you did flip the tables. I'm flipping them back. So we're going to jump <laughs> to the last couple questions of the pod, that I always hit at the end of the podcast. So the first question is, is um, what was the worst business decision you ever made? Well, I, I think going back to the last business that crashed in the financial crisis, we put all our, bags, uh, all our eggs in Wall Street or Deutsche Bank's uh, basket, right? So we had no other funding sources for our uh, for our you know mortgage uh, mortgages. So when Wall Street and Deutsche Bank shut down, the whole business model had basically collapsed, and that's why I've learned that lesson. So for the this current program with Definance, we're launching a fund to create liquidity for income share agreements. So we're not going to just take money from one investor. Hopefully, a lot of investors. So yeah, some investors' appetites may go up and down with time. But hopefully we can create enough of a um, you know, cross-section of investors so we can continue to create liquidity. So I think that's probably the worst decision. That's probably why the last business model crashed for us. Mm. No, I, think that's, is, I, think that, and I, I think that that's a good idea. Of, and no matter what, to learn that diversity is a good thing or to have multiple income sources and you know, having an ability to, if one, if one thing goes down or slows down or is in the, the area that you want to be in, that you know that you can have hey we got multiple sources of income or multiple investors or multiple different things can help you weather the storm so i think that's one great uh, worst business decision but one to great to learn from so now if we were to do the second question i always hit on which is so somebody that is just getting into startups or a small business or wanted to get into startups or small businesses what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them so you know everybody talks about bootstrapping and i, and I completely agree with that you need to bootstrap delay bringing out outside investors and diluting yourself. But what I would really, my advice would be, you have to plan your bootstrap, right? You just can't just start bootstrapping. You got to think about this. You got to look at your own personal savings. You're like, what's your strategy? Are you going to maintain a second job? Or are you going to tap into your savings? Whatever the strategy is, plan it out. How much runway do you really have with that type of a strategy, right? How far can you go? Do you need um, to hire people? Can you do a lot of the work yourself from the beginning, right? How do you maximize your credit in those early days to leverage as much from your credit to help you offset expenses or pay for expenses and so on? So really plan out your bootstrap, not just, you know, just jump yourself, you know, jump in the water and start trying to swim. Really plan it out and then uh, and then move forward is what I would no, say. I, I think that's, that's something a lot of entrepreneurs don't do. 
No, and I agree. And it's usually just jumping. Oh, we'll bootstrap it. We'll figure it out. We'll go along. And then you get halfway in and okay, we were even at bootstrapping, we ran out of runway or even with bootstrapping, we found out that we need, you know, in a different product, we need molds or we need something or we need a software program. We have something that we can't do. And if you never thought that out or plan that out, you can bootstrap all you want, but you still have to have that done and you can or run out of runway. So I think that's a, that's a great piece of advice. Well, as we wrap up, as we get to the end of the podcast, people want to get, you know, either if they have student loans and want to start using your program or if investors want to get involved or they want to be otherwise get in touch with you or be part of the part of your mission, what's the best way to reach out to you? Well, I know we're recording this at a certain time, but it's going to be released a little bit later. So by the time this podcast is released, our platform will be live. Hmm. So all people have to do is to go to definance.com. And in our, on our website, uh, they'll have access points into either refinancing their student loan and you know, uh, creating an account on our platform and g- going through that process. Or if they want to invest in income share agreements, they'll have an access into our ISA refinancing fund. So they'll hmm. be able to apply to become an investor. And thirdly, whether you need ISAs or not, if you want to access our ecosystem, at least for this year, it, there's no cost to it. Anybody can go and utilize our ecosystem to for their career guidance. We have other resources like mental health counseling, credit uh, services to help you um, repair your credit or to improve your credit, as well as like financial tools and tips, as well as investment tools and tips. So the ecosystem goes beyond just, just career. So those three things will be there. And then we're also in uh, July, I think hopefully this will be coming out sometime in July. Uh, mm. We have a... Um, um, crowdfunding campaign that we're planning. So if people want to support us, our business, then they'll be able to support us that way too. Awesome. Well, I think so. If oh, yeah, our social media best- at Definance, social media right. at Definance, find us at Definance. All right. Definance is D-E-F-Y-N-A-N-C-E.com. So best yep. way is to either look you up on social media or just go to your website and get in touch with you. Well, awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. It's been fun to talk. Always wish we had more time to go through a whole bunch of more fun topics and we'll have to have you back on sometime. Um, for those of you that are um, looking for help with your student loans, absolutely check out the finance. And uh, for those of you that are looking for help with uh, patents or trademarks or anything else that uh, need help with your business, feel free to reach out to us at Miller IP Law. For those of you that want to be a guest on the podcast, we'd love to have you on. You can go to inventivejourney.com and apply to be on the podcast. And uh, we look forward to uh, hearing your journey. Look forward to uh, seeing how the, the finance journey continues on and how things continue to move forward. Wish you the best of luck and appreciate you coming on the podcast. Hey, now we're friends, so we'll stay in touch. And uh, <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you.